0: Hey everyone, David Kern here. Just wanted to tell you about something that one of my friends is up to. Did you know that this year you can study classic literature with Joshua Gibbs? Starting September 2nd, Josh is teaching Paradise Lost for Beginners, a 14-week course devoted entirely to Milton's epic poem. In the spring, Gibbs is teaching Wisdom Literature for Beginners, which will focus on The Consolation of Philosophy by Bethes and the Book of Ecclesiastes. If you're familiar with Gibbs's work, you know these are two of his favorite texts to teach. He's been writing and lecturing on these books for years. Both classes are available on the student level and the auditor level, which is ideal for busy parents who want to keep reading and studying the classics. Paradise Lost for Beginners and Wisdom Literature for Beginners classes are both available as live online classes, downloadable videos, or audio downloads you can listen to on the go. You can find more about these classes and register at gibbsclassical.com. Once again, that's gibbsclassical.com. I highly recommend these courses. Josh's thoughts on these books are, are so insightful and so helpful. Um, so whether you have a student that you're looking to... Uh, you know, add something to their curriculum for the year, or you want to further your own education. I just can't speak highly enough of Joshua Gibbs. You may have read his blog posts or even heard his podcast, but when you see him teach and you get to know him, you see how funny and insightful and fun and uh, challenging he is in a classroom setting. So highly recommend those. And again, it's GibbsClassical.com. All right, with that, let's get on to this week's episode of Close Reads. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm David Kern. And I'm Tim McIntosh. And No Heidi Why Heidi, Heidi's not here. She's in like Zurich or something.
1: Oh, that's why yeah. I don't
0: see her on the Zoom yeah. call. Yeah, well, we uh, she's on she's on an adventure with her husband in, in like Switzerland or something. Some such some such nonsense. So she's um eating good food and seeing Europe and we're just here in the south sweating.
1: An Orthodox celebrates in the land of the Calvinist Reformation. (laughs) I know that's, I know it's Geneva, but still Zurich is probably close enough. That's where
0: you went first.
1: Yeah, that's where I went first. Well, uh, Heidi, I'm sure that while you're in Zurich, you are catching up on your past unlistened to close reads. We hope you're having a great time.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and, uh, you're going to be gone next week right
1: i'm going to the other land of reformations
0: scotland so well we're recording on thursday august 18th this isn't going to run for a couple days it'll run on monday will you be gone will you be in scotland by the time this episode drops
1: yes i will be just arriving galen and i'll be arriving that morning we're taking an overnight flight we leave sunday night and arrive monday morning in london and then we're going to train on over to scotland I think Heidi gets back next
0: Tuesday, maybe. So you guys will be in Scotland and Switzerland, and I'll just be here.
1: Man, you'll just be—that's gonna be tough for you. It's like
0: that twenty-four hours when you guys are both in Europe.
1: Yeah, and you're just here here
0: in America. Terrible day, sweating. (laughs) Well, people who—speaking of people who are not in America but definitely do a lot of sweating. Which is the uh, the subtitle to Tim's biogra- uh, biography, his journal of his Scotland trip. I was, I was outstanding. Um, we are here <laughs> to discuss Eugene Vodoloshkin's *Loris*. We're going to discuss uh, through page two hundred and thirty-nine. This is kind of a weird section, Tim. We were we were it's a weird chatting section. a little bit off the air, um, about just kind of how unusual this section is. And just to summarize, we get. We get more of Arseny slash Ustina on the road. Uh, He ends up uh, combining forces, if you will, which I think he would take issue with that phrasing, but he combines forces with Ambrosio, um, Mm. an Italian who has Mm. a ability to see the future and perhaps even time travel. Um, They end up setting out for Jerusalem. So about half of this Mm. section is them, uh, maybe a third, is them on the road towards uh jerusalem healing people along the way um being waylaid by highway robbers highwaymen um Mm. and we have also a strange interlude i guess a a chapter that's ambrosio's vision and at the beginning of the section we learn more about ambrosio and his uh, his ability to see the future and his interests and perhaps and and his um Uh, Of particular interest of his interests is his uh, his interest in when the world's going to end, and so that's kind of the synopsis of the section we get here. Um, I don't know that it's it's not like heavy on plot. It's kind of kind of episodic. They're they're kind of just beginning
1: a journey here, and we're getting to another. The whole book is is episodic now. I mean, after after the death of Ustina, everything it's um. It's like a travelogue. It's like, I mean, I see why it gets compared to Chaucer's yeah. Tales because it's, he moves to a new place and a new adventure begins. It's not people telling stories the way it is in right. Chaucer's Tale, but yeah, it's yeah. a travelogue and it's episodic.
0: In a way, people are kind of telling tales. There's like,
1: yeah, there's yeah, visions true.
0: and yeah, things yeah. like that.
1: On page 189, speaking of telling tales and yeah. <laughs> Ambr- are you are you saying to yourself ambrosio or Ambrogio? uh i'm saying ambrosio Ambrogio, yeah. like a good italian okay that's how i'm going to try to say it also that's how i've been saying it <laughs> in my mind ambrosio uh <laughs> tells the story of a vision and his vision is of 1977 leningrad state university I mean. I, I, so I was thinking about it. When were you born? I was born six years before that. The contents yeah, of that vision. I was this born. This book in takes 71. place in like
0: fourteen hundred, and there's a whole section that takes place when you were alive. I
1: know. <laughs> I know. It's so. The, I mean, this is a book. It's a really unique book, and this is probably the most unique section.
0: You use the word hard, difficult, strange. I don't know if what. I think yeah. maybe you. texted me that this is kind of a hard section what do you think makes this a difficult section to discuss because i think that both of us as we're thinking about how to talk about it where to even begin and how to unpack it without having the rest of the book to talk about is a little bit tricky
1: yeah yeah it is a little bit tricky and it also feels a little bit like there is a there is a a lessening a lightening of the inner monologue that he has with mm. Justina. Yeah, yeah, we'll because a couple times. for the first time in the book, he has a friend. He has someone that he's talking to. He's not alone. It's, a, it's really unique because up until this point, the trials that he's been facing have grown worse and worse. He's gotten more, and his kind of like personhood has been more and more effaced. But now there's like a relief from that. Mm. Yeah. In the form of this fellow traveler, Ambrosio. Ambrosio. And yeah, and the inner dialogue is not with his deceased, what are we going to call her, girlfriend, fiance, yeah. wife. Yeah. He has external conversations with his traveling companion. So it's a little bit of a relief. That's,
0: that's a great point. I think there was only three times, maybe four, in, the, in all of these pages where he yeah. steps out and has this conversation with her. But then at the same time, there's all these conversations about the notion of time. Mm. And one of the things that I found myself doing was reading this, those sections as if it's, you know, when you read philosophy, like you might read Kierkegaard or Heidegger or whoever. And uh, as you're reading, you're kind of having this dialogue with the philosopher because Mm -hmm. you're trying to get to the bottom of what they're trying to say. But then, the nature of reading philosophy is that a lot of the time you're, you're spending time trying to decide, do I agree with this? It's a yeah. part of what I believe. And then how is that, if I don't, how does it challenge what I believe and why do I disagree? And can I take some part of this and make it incorporate? And now I know we don't do that super consciously, but that's kind of part of what the yeah. action of reading philosophy is. And I found myself dipping into that mode of reading a little bit when they're having these, I was going to say diatribes. They're not diatribes, these excursives, <laughs> about... Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's
1: a good word, excursives.
0: <laughs> and it's funny because this is called The Book of Journeys, part three. I think it's part three. And it's called The Book of Journeys. And yet in this book, they're on this journey and they're having all these rabbit trails, these excursives. Um, yeah. Do you find yourself doing that too? You And you've read more philosophy than I do. You probably make it more of a regular part of your reading life. And then you taught yeah. it. So as you're reading Ambrosio, talking about... <laughs> Uh, bro, talking yeah. about uh, whether time exists or whether it's like a mm-hmm. construct for human experience mm-hmm. by some a way that the only way that we can process existence, so God gave us time. Do you find yourself dipping into that? or are you just like, is it are you able to like stay in I, the narrative?
1: I find myself dipping into it, and I find myself kind of saying, Hold up, this is part of the narrative, and like, hold back your analytical mind, yeah. but it's a little bit different. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it, it's a little bit, I should say, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit difficult also mm. um, because it is philosophy yeah. and you're right. I mean, like philosophy is all about kind of critical analysis. Yeah. Do I assent to this proposition or do I not assent to this proposition? And... Uh, uh, reading a narrative tale is not, do I assent to this proposition? You have to assent to the proposition to get anything out of the book. And so when philosophy is buried within a narrative, you kind of don't know what to do with it. Right.
0: Well, and I I guess he does resolve it a little bit because then he allows Arsene and other people to be like, hold on, bro. (laughs) Can we examine this theory that you're throwing out about, about existence in the universe? and yeah. then even our is kind of like talking one of the t- few times he does talk to Ustina he brings it up he's like this guy thinks the time might not exist or the world's gonna end mm-hmm. soon or something like that mm-hmm. which I find kind of fascinating
1: yeah yeah I find it fascinating so, too. go ahead well I have I have a, a grand theory that I want to roll oh, out who doesn't you? love a good Tim grand theory <laughs> <laughs> hey, I hope that I can articulate this grand theory. And it's like, it's way oversized. I know that I've bitten off more than I can chew, but I'm going to try anyway. <laughs> Throw it out there. Let's yeah. see what happens. When does this ever stop yeah, exactly. me? Exactly. When I mean, does this ever stop We've been doing me? this a long time, Tim. As I read this book, I, I by the time we've gotten to this point, something is missing. And the thing hmm. that's missing, oddly enough, in a book about, medieval Russian Christendom. Knights. No, no, no. Well, that's true. (laughs) There aren't many knights. Is Christ. Oh, interesting. Like there's so few mentions of Christ, the very center of Christendom.
0: Hmm. That's interesting.
1: And I've, now we're on the way to Jerusalem. So I suspect that's going to change. And I've read the book. (laughs) So I know that it's going to change.
0: But that's still a very interesting
1: observation. So here is my here is my thesis. Okay.
0: The grand theory.
1: My grand theory is that the medieval world kind of I hope I can articulate this emphasized everything around Jesus. Hmm. It had like it had diagrams of the cosmos. It had a like a, a robust vision of like the circles of hell. It had an understanding, at least in Western Europe of purgatory. It had robust teachings on morality and on um, the preferred structure of government. I mean, Dante who wrote, you know, this, this vision of the afterlife that is articulate and Mm -hmm. profound also wrote a lot about what is God's preferred design for the universe. And if you didn't know, it's a monarchy, like a single monarchy, but he also kind of begrudgingly accepts the fact that like, we're so messed up. We can't really do a single monarchy. So it has to be kind of sub monarchies. Okay. So the medieval world has like this incredible, rich, robust vision of like the way that all of the afterlife and of this life ought to be. And oddly enough, the kind of linchpin of the whole kit is Christ. And yet he doesn't show up that much in a strange way. Okay, and now, you don't mean literally
0: show Christ shows up in like a vision or something. You just mean he's not even discussed that much.
1: Yeah, it's just yeah. not, he just, it's like he is the necessary but neglected, He is the vitally necessary but neglected figure that made all of medieval Christendom possible. Mm-hmm. Second part of my thesis, today, like 2022 in the United States is almost the exact opposite situation, which is... Mm-hmm. Jesus is sort of like always in the mouth. And I'm speaking, especially as a Protestant of Protestants. And yet there is hardly anything surrounding him that is sort of like a, so, so he's almost like become a man without qualities. Hmm. Like we know the story of Jesus, but we don't really know like, who is the who is this man and what would life after his life look like mm-hmm. the medievals had a really profound robust intricate vision of to answer that mm-hmm. what is life after the time of christ what should it look mm-hmm. like what does it look like but it feels like today we kind of know this single solitary man as christians but we don't have much of an agreement at all about what life ought to look like after his life Mm. Like, what is the what is what does his existence mean for how we live yeah Yeah.
0: so it's interesting can we can we look at a section because i think there's something that addresses this i i I think i might think i think i think your grand theory is on to something okay um
1: 222
0: 223 um I want to let's read these two pages here. Um, Yeah, they're at this monastery. They're on their trip to Jerusalem, and they stop at the monastery of um, it's in Kiev. I can't remember what it's called, but it says. Yeah, they were questioned for a long time at the monastery gates about who they were. There were doubts about letting them in when they Mm. learned Ambrosio was Catholic. Someone was sent to the abbot. He gave his blessing for both to enter, deciding a visit to the monastery could benefit the foreigner. They were given one candle each, and then a monk led them into the caves of St. Anthony and the caves of Theodosius. They saw the relics of the Venerable Anthony and Theodosius. There were many other saints there too, some of whom Arseny knew about, and occasionally some he did not know about. The monk accompanying them walked ahead. He turned at one of the twists, and each of his eyes began burning as if it were a candle. Ephrosinia Polotskaya. I don't know if I did that right, but the monk in- indicated bright. one of the reliquaries she returned here from when you from where you were healed she returned here from where you were headed her relics were transferred here during the times of discord in the holy land peace be with you o efrosinia said arseny and we did stop in polotsk though of course we did not catch you there she will return to polotsk in 1910 ambrosio surmised the relics will be transported to orsha along the the Dnepr, and then carried by hand from orsha to polotsk the monk said nothing and walked on Arseny and Ambrosio began following behind him, feeling for the uneven floor with their feet. Dawn and summer were sparkling overhead. Outside, but only three candles tore into the darkness here. Darkness slipped away from the candles, though rather uncertainly and not very far. It would stay still under low arches, only an arm's length away, and then swirl, ready to close in again. It was already hot outside at this early hour, but cool reigned here. Is it always so cool here? asked Ambrosio. "'Here there is never the frost nor the heat "'that are the manifestations of extremes,' answered the monk. "'Eternity is tranquil, and so it is characterized by coolness.' "'Arsene drew a candle toward the inscription "'near one of the shrines. "'Salutations, O beloved Agapit,' Arsene quietly uttered. "'I had so hoped to meet you.' "'To whom are you wishing health?' asked Ambrosio. "'This is the venerable Agapit, an unmercenary physician.' "'Arsene dropped to his knees and pressed his lips to Agapit's hand.' "'You know, Agapit, all my healing. "'It it is such a strange story. "'I can't really explain it to you. "'Everything was more or less obvious "'as long as I was using herbal treatments. "'I treated and knew God's help came through the herbs. "'Well, then, now, though, God's help comes through me. "'Just me, do you understand? "'And I am less than my cures, far less. "'I am not worthy of them, "'and that makes me feel either frightened or awkward. "'You want to say you are worse than herbs?' "'asked the monk. "'Arseny raised his eyes to the monk.' In a certain way, I am worse, for the herb does not sin. But it doesn't sin because it has no consciousness. Is that not so? Said Ambrosio. Can this truly be a merit of the herb? It means one must consciously rid oneself of sin, Shrugged the monk. And that's all there is to it. One must be more like God, you know, not expound on things. (laughs) The three men walked on and were met by ever more new saints. The saints were not exactly moving or even speaking, but the silence and immobility of the dead were not were not absolute there was under the ground a motion that was not completely usual and a particular sort of voices rang out without disturbing the sternness and repose the saints spoke using words from psalms and lines from the lives of the saint of saints that arson remembered well from childhood when they drew the candles closer shadows shifted along dried faces and brown half-bent hands the saints seemed to raise to raise their heads smile and beckon barely perceptibly with their hands a city of saints," whispered Ambrosio, following the play of the shadow. "They present us the illusion of life." "No," objected Arsene, also in a whisper. "They disprove the illusion of death."
1: So there's, that's, a, that's a great section.
0: Yeah, it's really interesting, and it's it's got a lot of different things that this book does so well, which is the, this dialogue about complex theological and philosophical yep. topics. Yep. It's a little esoteric. There's something of a vision in it. And yet it has these like simple profound truths right in the midst of it. Uh, lots yeah. of some mysterious characters as well. Um, but there's that line, it says, the monk says, one must be more like God, you know, not expound on things. And that line <laughs> came to mind when you were saying what you were <laughs> saying about your grand theory, because in a way it feels like the way you're describing people now, Yeah, there's this ability to Theology is so often now, I think, and I'm, I'm speaking in broad terms here. So sure. bear with me, everybody who's listening and wants to turn their, throw their phones into the river as they you know, drive over the bridge. Theology so often now is just a matter of expounding on things. You know, it's the, mm. it's the idea of the, the, the seven-volume systematic, systematic theology, theology where you can define yep. everything. You can define, and that's, yeah. what, that's what knowing your faith or knowing, getting to the bottom of your faith and being able to express your faith and, and explain it and define it and, and then talk, try to convince somebody else of its value is so often yeah. done through expounding on things. And that, I think for the, since, the, maybe since maybe it's a function of the enlightenment,
1: I think it probably is, um, yeah. weeding its way. We're going to make propositional right. statements yeah. and they can be confirmed or denied. I think that's a very enlightenment kind of
0: habit. And, and, there's, a, and there's a lot of value to that. You know, there's value to being able to express and define and expound on things. But this monk is saying, one must be more like God, you know, not expound on things. And that reminds me of, Heidi was talking, I think she brought it up last week about the idea of, well, I think I used the word theosis, it's this orthodox concept of like, the journey to salvation is the journey of becoming more like Christ. And, for, and, and the, until very recently, the idea of like a systematic theology of the orthodox church it's like, they were in Russia, in- Can't get there from here. In, in Syria, in like Antioch, <laughs> people were like, why would we do that? Why would we need that? Yeah. Like there's not even like- <laughs> Of, course. The, 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 these, of course. these theologians who were like following on the footsteps of people for 2000 years that didn't live in the West, that didn't have the repercussions, the trickle-down repercussions of the enlightenment on their every waking moment are like, they couldn't get their head around it. So it wasn't until mm-hmm. orthodoxy, really comes into the West, particularly in America, and you've got these people who grew up in that world and then they start writing what, what you could say are, I mean, there were books of theology, but they were mostly what we might call books of devotion. They were like yeah. books written by mystics and church fathers and they were, but they were not about propositional ideas or th- grand theological theories, to borrow the yep. phrase you just yep. used. They were about how do we become more like Christ? They were about that notion of theosis and i've there's this new book out about the bible and it even talks about the differences in the way the scriptures are thought about and how for now again this is a this is a bit of an overstatement here but for a lot of people throughout history the scriptures were thought of as like it was they they try you they were trying to approach it in a very systematic way it's about a moral order there's like a code to it yeah. there's do's and don'ts you know um and thus it became. Super important, for example, to be able to define to be able to resolve what seemed like complications in the text between different bi- chapters of the Bible and stuff like that whereas yeah. um in the East for so long, the scriptures were like this mystical thing that was this this it wasn't a guidebook about how to be more moral it was more of like a devotional book and again using that term loosely for how to be more like Christ, and that's the way they that's the way they th- they actively thought about approaching it. And so things like, it was less about trying to define something to prove its veracity or truth or debate yeah. it. And it was more about what can this story, what can this parable, what can this letter teach me and our community about becoming more like Christ?
1: And, and I think this book is clearly, so clearly in that vein, in that tradition this is about like laurus trying to do what god wants him to do yeah yeah and and there's like in a way there's kind of like a riddle that he's pursuing you know like basically when will i have achieved my whatever we're going to call it salvation and
0: also ustina's he even during the section he's like i don't know when am i gonna know if i've done this
1: Totally. And there's no, like, comprehension follows obedience. Right, right. Not not obedience follows comprehension. Right. He does not understand. The only way that he will understand is by doing what is kind of, like, put before him.
0: I, you know, I think this section is really interesting here because, to me, it's almost like be, the book kind of switches gears a little bit. Because up to this point, since Ustina died, he's been so yeah. much about the work of trying to make sure that she is saved mm-hmm. and then in turn, you know, save himself. Yeah. And he's doing that based on, almost in, in a way based on a series of propositions about the way salvation works, right? But then this monk here yeah. is telling him, this is your journey is about being like Christ. Yeah. And now it's like, it begins to shift gears where that question of him becoming more like Christ and helping other people become more like Christ becomes the preoccupation of his journeys. Um, and, Mm. and I don't think that, um, you know, I don't think that like, you know, Protestants, I come from that world. I went to Protestant Bible college. I'm not saying that that theology, just, just to clarify is not about becoming more like Christ. When I say that sometimes it can be a little propositional, or about defending things and and being able to make arguments and apologetics and things like that. I'm not saying that 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 is at the cost of trying to be like Christ. It's just that the way we talk about it and work towards that is a little bit different in the different traditions. And I think, you know, the idea of theosis is to be like God. And it's interesting that he begins to be more consumed, I think, from this point about what that means, as opposed to what it means for he or Ustina to be saved. So, like, it seems like at this point there's a delineation in those ideas in this book.
1: Yeah, I think that's right. That sound that sounds exactly right. That's my
0: grand theory. And it's
1: interesting <laughs> that it's being accompanied by that. That is happening during the passage to Jerusalem, mm.
0: and know? they're in this like cave under a monastery with relics.
1: Yeah, yeah, right. Um, I, I want to go yeah, back yeah. for a second because I, I think part of what I appreciate about orthodoxy is that it it seems to me like its beginning point is I'm going to call it mysticism or maybe another way of saying it is it sort of begins by welcoming a mystery. Like there's something that we don't understand Mm -hmm. and that that we don't understand asks of us that we be um, reverent toward it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that is at the heartbeat, not only of Orthodox, but I think also of medieval Catholicism. And I think there's a really interesting way to think about medieval Catholicism in Western Europe. Hmm. It's, it's, I think it's a, a great way to think about it is like this. Um, It's a cathedral. And it's like a Gothic cathedral, like like Catholic theology in the medieval world is like a cathedral in that the actual building is ornate, profoundly and rigorously structured. Mm -hmm. I mean, every square inch, if you've been in one of the great medieval Gothic cathedrals of Europe, every inch means something mm-hmm. and is organized quite deliberately and it and it symbolically conveys some truth. Yeah. I my favorite building in the entire world is in Rome, St. John mm. of Laterno. Mm. And um, when you step into the sanctuary, there's a ring kind of like maybe 40, 30, 40 feet off the ground, and it has relief sculptures. And above those relief sculptures are paintings. And the relief sculptures are of New Testament scenes and the um, paintings are of the Old Testament scenes that kind of pre-shadow the New Testament stories. Anyway.
0: I'm looking at pictures right now while you're talking.
1: Oh, it's incredible. I encourage anybody to look at it online. And if you ever get a chance to go to Rome, yeah. skip the Vatican, skip all of like, I mean, they're like, skip the Colosseum, go to St. John of the Letourneau. It is mind boggling. It's so beautiful. They have these sculptures of... The apostles that kind of line the sanctuary, mm. and each of them I think are probably like twelve feet in yeah, those right white now. White marble. They're unbelievable. Okay. But this brings me to my point. When you step into the sanctuary, there is a there is a profound silence mm. in the middle of the sanctuary. And so what you have on the exterior is a, a motif of organization, logic, rigor, and articulate meaning. Mm. But what you have at the center is mysticism. Mm. You have silence. Mm. You have, of course, the Eucharist is delivered there. Yeah. And the, the, the Eucharist is the most profound of all mysteries.
0: Yeah. In, in the orthodoxy, the, the sacraments are called, oftentimes people call, refer to them as the seven
1: mysteries. Mm, yeah, right, right. Yeah.
0: That's, that's amazing. The, um, now, I've, you want to go to Rome?
1: Oh, man. We should do a close reads conference in Rome. What a city. And that's, that's like the first stop is St. John of the Laterno. And by the way, it holds a very prominent pace, place in Protestant history because the steps are one of the places that Luther used to do penance And he would repeat verses from Romans. And there's one particular verse, I wish I knew exactly what it was, that basically he would say these verses from Romans from memory over and over and over. And one of these verses, you know, like your works are as rags before me or something to this effect. Like he couldn't really, he would say them over and over. And he was like, I don't know what this means. This isn't making (laughs) sense to me. You know, and from this comes like, the great Luther moment. Oh man, I can't earn my way to heaven. Mm. It has to be through faith, Mm -hmm. sola fide, the first precept of the Protestant Reformation. So it's, it's, that building is profound in many different ways. It's not just profound for, you know, it's Catholic history, but also for its Protestant history.
0: Mm. So what do you, you're talking about this idea of mysticism and mystery and, and quietness. In the middle of that church that that for me that brick that calls to mind here the the visions i guess in this book whether it's the visions of these saints they seem to be talking with in this section the the vision of the future that ambrosio has his ability right. to see the future right. um all of these things are, have like a little bit of that mis- that magical realism vibe that you mentioned at the beginning yeah. like that kind of just like it has that sense about it when you read how, is that are those meant to be? Do you think expressions of the mysticism of of their faith? I mean, how, what is the purpose of those 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 visions, and particularly Ambrosio's vision of your childhood?
1: <laughs> I was like, for a second, I was like, my childhood? Oh yeah, of course, nineteen seventy seven. You know,
0: I mean, as much as we can get into without talking about the end of the book.
1: I think it plays on this theme that time is not a linear arrow. I mean, this book hits it over and over and over in different ways. Time is not an arrow that has point a, you know, beginning and point Z and time is something else. And it's, kind of circular and it's also kind of linear. So that's the way that I'm taking it. Now that leads very neatly Mm -hmm. into a kind of like mystical vision that Usina is not really dead, even though she's dead and she's not really alive, even though she's alive. You know, it just, it's, it's, I don't want to say it's a muddy vision of time because it's not, but it's a, Much more dimensional vision of time, and that that dimensional vision of time fits very neatly into kind of like the mysticism that seems to me is the heart of the book.
0: Do you this quest, this time stuff, seems like it's got to be one of the things that most makes this book difficult. And I'm wondering if people who are from other cultures, it could even be people Mm. who are from like cultures that are predominantly Hindu or Buddhist. Or yeah. or that just live in other parts of the world where, where the notion of time is not is not like held onto so tightly. Like we've all been to other yeah. countries. I mean, if you traveled the world at all, other continents have completely different conceptions of what time means and ha- and how whether we should you know stick to it. I went to Peru, so I'm in South America, and we're there on this mission trip and we're gonna go to this church service that starts at ten o'clock, right? So all of us Americans get to the service at nine forty-five, and we're sitting in the rows. Absolutely, nobody else Absolutely. showed up till like eleven. You know, totally. So I'm wondering if that this this sort of European Western, um, clinging to time has yeah. It, it's I'm wondering if what if you think it has anything to do with the Enlightenment though, like is oh, the wow. way we cling yeah. to it that way, and thus it's conf- you know the notion of it is so fascinating to us or confusing to us. So here. He's offering this mystical sense of time, but then we're also getting books all the time about time travel, right, and movies, like, yeah, yeah, it's one of the the chief concerns of fiction of the last hundred and fifty years, for sure, since like h g. Wells, but I don't know that that was the case a long time ago. People probably thought, well, it's weird that I'm like only get this many years on earth, but like they didn't live according to a clock the same way, right they kind of was, yeah, the rhythms right, of their lives right. were completely different
1: so I read this great article, David no, sorry, right. I'm cutting you off about um. It was written, I think, in the Atlantic, and it was kind of saying to Americans, hey, do you want to understand your own culture? Read travel books written for other cultures, telling those other cultures what it's like to be in the (laughs) United States. And the number one thing with a bullet was be on time. Americans are obsessed about time. Mm -hmm. And it is so true, man, like having traveled overseas, especially in non-European countries, Mm -hmm. Man, time is so elastic. Yeah, yeah. It's so elastic. But even if
0: you go to like Italy also, or something like that, you know, like could, could, could that, that quiet space in a cathedral or could a cathedral at all have been built by a culture obsessed with time? Because first of all, you're going to start that and the next right, guys, seven question. guys later are the ones that are going to finish it, you know?
1: You're never going to see the end of yeah. this in your lifetime. Right. And so you have to commit your whole life's being toward an event that you will never right. see. Your kids probably will never see. Your grandkids probably yeah. will never see. Yeah, yeah that's, a, that's, a, that's a great observation. One other thing. I mean, the idea of time as an arrow, I'm going to like, this is a little bit... I'm going to sound like we're. I'm um, contradicting what we're <laughs> saying, but the idea of time as an arrow. I remember reading Umberto Eco, introducing this concept. The author Umberto who gets compared to this book, book often. Um, the Name of the Rose is his famous novel, and he's a semiotician, I believe, and just. I mean, one of like the great learned minds, yeah. you know, of our time, and. I remember reading this book and he said the whole idea of time being linear and not just linear, but moving toward a destination, like a promised land. This is a Judeo-Christian concept. This is not the way that like human beings are equipped naturally. Because if you think about it, this is not the way that life works naturally. What, What seems more natural is that In winter, everything dies. In spring, it's born again. In summer, it flourishes. In fall, it begins death. And in winter, it dies again. And then you repeat the cycle over and over. A child is born, reaches adolescence, you know, Mm -hmm. reaches adulthood, reaches elderly age. And in adulthood, procreation happens and it repeats that cycle. I mean, the thing that we see over and over and over in so many forms of nature is cycle. Mm. And so Umberto Echo's thesis, and I've and I've read it in other places also, and I and I think he's exactly right, is that the notion that we're not just repeating ourselves, that, that time is going in a specific direction and that there was a beginning and that there will be an end, a kind of culmination to time. It's a very Judeo-Christian understanding. Mm-hmm. And you can see how things like Marxism, like Marxism, there's a beginning, there's a capitalist society in which the oppressor is pressing down on the neck of the oppressed. you know the factory owners are employing large swaths of people come in from the, the farms. And then there's a solution, and the solution is like a communism hmm. in which the people own the means of production, and they're the ones well, who are in charge of their own destinies and government. which is
0: not unlike what people in the first like Jews in the first century had their, they were, their neck pressed on by the empire,
1: by the Romans, right, you know? It, right. They're, the, they're the, And back in Egypt. Yeah, also. exactly. Yeah. And we're going to go to, we're going to go to Egypt. Yeah. There's going to be a solution to that. We're not just going to keep making bricks without straw. We're going to go somewhere and we're going to arrive and life is going to be great. It's going to be there's great. There's a promised land. Yeah, there's a promised land. And so it's interesting. So I think this is part of the the question that faces us at the end of this book. This book does not have a linear vision of time. And yet it does because we are going toward the culmination of the Christian experience. We are going toward mm. Jerusalem. Mm. So it's a funny, two things are happening. There's this kind of like, whatever we're gonna call it, kind of a mushy time, a elastic. folded time, a yeah. ca- elastic time. That's happening on the one hand. And yet at the same time, l- Time is an arrow. We are like our hero is moving now with a friend toward a destination. That destination is the culmination of the promised land, the great city of David, Jerusalem. Mm. Mm.
0: And as that's happening, going back to what we were talking about earlier, it's that idea of theosis of becoming like Christ. It stops. Yes, right. This question of salvation, while still there, seems to have been shifted into this question of being Mm. not like it's almost like i don't know is salvation the destination and then now and the theosis is the notion of like becoming something of being something so like they're on a journey towards that ultimate place and at the same time the book is now introducing us to this question of of like it's not anti-cyclical but just of the notion of what is that we're called to become to be to to exist as yeah Um, it's all even the themes are like folding in on each other um
1: yeah yeah
0: well it's hard to say too much more without getting into the next sections Agreed. so next week a little programming note here next week you'll be gone you'll be on your honeymoon to uh to scotland um at the land of your forefathers i assume yes and, that's right uh you'll be, I, I assume you've got the kilt ready and you're going to like, yeah, do. you're going to go to a high, some highlands the somewhere. Tartan. Gonna, yep. You, know, y- you yodel in Scotland, but right? I'm just kidding. They <laughs> bring the bagpipes. Um, so you're going to be gone with Galen on your honeymoon and Heidi and I are going to discuss the next section. Then the section after that will be our last one before the Q and A. So the end of the book. So again, next week, Heidi and I the week after that, all three of us will be back together to talk about the end of the book. And then we'll do our Q and A. So three more episodes on Loris. Um, so I'm sure as you are listening, you're furiously writing down your questions for that Q and a, um, but you know, maybe in the meantime, we'll be able to head some of those off over the next couple of weeks. But Tim, given that we're not going to, uh, hear from you for a couple of weeks, do you have any final thoughts yeah. you would like to offer?
1: Gosh, I, I, I don't, I I don't want to ruin anything. Um, and I don't want to hype the, the I, I There is a riddle to be solved in this story, but it's, I don't think that the riddle is going to be a radical U-turn, you know? It's not like a mystery that's going to be solved or anything like that. It's a mystery that's going to be solved, but it's not an Agatha Christie revelation, you know, at the end. There's not going to be a detective at Um, the end just saying like, blah, 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 Yeah, yeah, here's what it all meant. So glad, yeah, time to go home now. (laughs) It'd be Um, hilarious at the end of this book if she just like
0: had a moral, He's like, and all of this mystical stuff leads to this. Yeah. Be kind to children. Yeah. Because they'll get you
1: when they grow Um, up. Yeah. Recycle your plastics. (laughs) Okay. Have a great day, Loris. Avoid gluten. (laughs) Right. Avoid gluten, Loris. You who is preparing for the 21st century in factory farming, eat. Oh, Usina, now known as Laris, avoid yeah, gluten. Exactly, exactly. I don't understand. What's like? It's right there. It's right there in the text. It's right there in the text.
0: Well, Tim, have a great time. <laughs> Say hi to Galen and uh, and the Highlands yeah. and sheep and haggis and whatever else um, it's going to be. You're going to be participating in in Scotland. Um, I'll do that yeah so next week Heidi will be back we'll, we'll pepper her with questions about uh, um, Swiss food and goats and uh, pristine lake water and in the meantime um, in the meantime for Tim McIntosh and for Heidi White I'm David Kern. thanks so much for listening until next time happy reading